This episode is brought to you by Bray Wealth Insights. As an entrepreneur, there are many things to know. Bray Wealth Insights is in the business of helping business owners gain clarity. Many owners do not understand the importance of the relationship between their business, their personal estate plan, and their workforce. Bray Wealth Insights helps entrepreneurs to build business continuation plans, recruit, retain, and reward key employees. And with cutting edge surveys and tools, they help owners to understand what their workforce values. For more information, you can contact Bray Wealth Insights at info at braywi.com. That's I-N-F-O at B-R-A-E-W-I.com. Now back to our regular scheduled programming. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Leverage and Beverage, a show about business building and insights into some really cool beverages. We'll hear stories about business, talk business strategy, and chat about tasting notes. I'm Greg Sobosinski on the show today. We have Drew Farnese of uh, Revamp365. Drew, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, um, Drew, we talked about this a little bit before we we jumped on here, but uh, what's on your mind? What's on my mind? And that is exactly what I said. That's a scary question to ask me. There's always (laughs) a million things on my mind. Um, So I could go into anything that happened today because a whole lot of craziness happened today in the business. But I think overall, one of the things that's been on my mind most is like AI. Mm. Interesting. How so? What what particular tools or anything in particular that sticks out? Um, I'm kind of in a lot of ways. Like I'm tracking everything that's going on, everything that's happening. You know, we use and leverage technology a lot in the mm-hmm. real estate business and everything. So I try to stay on the leading edge of what's happening, what's being developed, how it's being used and applied in sure. other businesses, other industries. Now everything with Chat GPT, it's like it's kind of becoming more, you know, known wide by everybody. Right. right. Yeah. It's interesting. I, there's actually a networking group I'm a part of, and this one lady is, she writes content, you know what I mean? And so with this uh, resurgence of, of chat GPT and other AI tools, it's like, well, that's what these tools do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you kind of think, well, what are the first things to go? What are the first things to kind of go to the wayside and only the essential things that require hard, diligent work are the ones that are going to remain probably at least have the strongest power to, to stay in the that's relative right. markets they're in. Um, that's cool. I, I think it's a definitely a talking point. And I think, uh, have you thought of any particular areas in spe- specifically that are going to really impact how AI would really impact what you're doing here? So th- there's a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So even dating back to a year and a half ago, we started integrating AI into our sales process. Like literally, you know, before it was a big thing, like we had mm. softwares that we were using that were literally actively listening to sales phone calls that we were having. So it would not just after the fact, give like feedback based on the call to the sales representative, but real live time, like feedback as to what to say in the moment. So yeah, it's mm. like, and that's stuff that existed long before open AI was a thing, right. right? So like these things are going to become really affordable for a lot of people because this was not cheap by any means. Now, a similar technology today would be, you know, 
pennies on the dollar of what it cost two years ago. So it's, sure. it's crazy. There's so many use cases, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's rewind here and let's talk about you and this business that you run here. Uh, so Revamp365, what is it and what do you guys do? Sure. So yeah, Revamp365 is essentially a wholesale real estate investment company. So what that means in a nutshell is we go do direct to seller marketing. We find properties. A lot of times they're distressed and we put those properties under contract and we go resell those contracts to either flippers, landlords, developers, you name it. So mm. we're essentially the acquisitions side of other people's business. Really cool. And so I think a lot of people, when they get their first taste of, of real estate, they either think realtor, like someone just selling their house, or they think, oh, you know, my friend, he flips homes or something like that. Um, so did you have a, a start in those areas or how did you get to this point right now where you decided that wholesale wholesaling was, was the way to go for you? Sure. Yeah. So it is funny because a lot of people that get involved in wholesaling, that's usually their first step into the real estate world. There's so much like kind of bullshit knowledge out there that, you know, like you can wholesale with no money, no experience and start a business and build capital by doing that. And there absolutely are cases of cases that. where that is true, yeah. but largely, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like 1% or exactly. less case. Yeah. Right. It's like, yes, you can do it. You can do a deal, but you're probably not going to turn it into a business with no knowledge and no resources. Right. So a lot of people, that is how they start, but it was the opposite for me. I started as a fix and flip guy and buying rental properties and everything. And over the years, like I was trying to grow and scale a fix and flip company. And this was, I guess, yeah, six, seven years ago at this point, I was trying to scale. We were trying to get up to 30 flips a year. And by like the end of Q1 of that year, we had like 12 flips going on at the same time. So it's like, okay, this is a possibility. We may be able to hit these numbers, but our biggest issue was acquisitions. There weren't enough good deals for us to buy mm. that would be profitable. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole of generating our own leads, doing some direct seller marketing on our own, creating our own deals and everything. Cause in my mind, like I had bought houses off the MLS. I had bought houses from other wholesalers and everything like, and we had done some small, like mail campaigns before mm -hmm. and generated one or two deals out of them. So in my mind, when it's like, okay, now we have an acquisitions problem, I should be able to solve this pretty easily. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah, man, I probably spent nine to 12 months kind of figuring the whole thing out and burning through a lot of money. Um, trying to really figure out the marketing piece first. How do you get people to respond to you? And then really from there, it was figuring out a sales process and everything. And it kind of just became an animal of its own. But Yeah, I definitely want to jump into some of the marketing and the sales process. But first, maybe let's, let's do contrast the two, like the fix and flip world versus the wholesale world. And so sure. basically, it sounds like you kind of moved on from some of the fix and, and flip stuff, at least uh, by and large, because you didn't have inventory, you didn't you didn't have a it wasn't a sustainable business at that time. Granted, the market could have come back, but you kind of want something that can be a little more consistent uh, going forward. Um, but maybe contrast the two, like the difficulties of each. And it seems like to me, at least, at the fix and flip side is almost harder. Um, it, it from like from like boots on the ground resources required. Yep. Um, but so we talk about some of that stuff, and then 
how you graduated from that and are kind of in this wholesaling space. Sure. So yeah, I would definitely say it's not necessarily graduating, right? Right. Uh, because <laughs> there, there are two totally different things. And <clears throat> excuse me, like I was naive on this too, like coming from being the fix and flip guy and then going to wholesaling. Like I said, the perspective is a lot of people, that's their first step into real estate, right? So you know, in my mind, seven years ago, I was probably like, that's not that difficult of a thing to do, right? Like mm -hmm. we can do that. We can generate leads. We can close deals because we already do the hard part. We do the construction. We do the renovation. We raise the money. We do all the hard stuff. This is going to be easy. But yeah, boy, was I wrong. It's, uh, mm. it's, it's not even like in fix and flip, like you're in the construction and real estate business. Mm-hmm. In wholesaling, I wouldn't even say you're in the real estate business. You're just hmm. in the marketing and sales business. Right. It happens to be that your product is real estate, right? but the reality is it has very little to do with real estate. Yeah. So it's interesting. There's a guy who was commenting on the beer market one time. He basically said that um, breweries are essentially marketing companies. This is the product is beer. Sure. You know what I mean? I think I said it for a lot of industries, but it's like, granted, you have a few things you need to have. You need to have good liquid. But after that, it's like, yeah, how do you market this? How do you get people to buy it? You know, that's really what it comes down to. Um, so let's kind of dive, in, dive into a few of those things you mentioned. So uh, let's talk about marketing. Sure. So for you, it seems like that's a huge thing for you guys. That's how you kind of get all the leads that you guys get. What do you kind of pull on or what do you? What are your main um, outreaches as far as marketing goes? Such a great question. Um, and I can go pretty deep in a lot of different ways. The Not as a cop-out, but like the easiest way that I can answer that question is we have done almost everything, everything. that anybody has ever done in the wholesale <laughs> industry. So to boil that down a little bit, it's like we, we have done and still do like a lot of direct mail. That has always kind of been the staple of what we've done and have always been pretty successful with it. Um, but yeah, what we ran TV commercials for over a year, we have done text message marketing, cold calling. I don't like that marketing mm. method, honestly. Cause it's like, I look deeply into like me as a consumer and as a human, what, what do you respond to? Exactly. And what do I, what do I not like? And what drives <laughs> me nuts? Right. It's like, we all get spam calls and robo calls all the time and everything. And it's like, man, that crap's kind of annoying. So why do I want to do the same thing? You right. Know? Right. So, um, yeah, the, the, the phone calling is especially interesting because I've seen it in, in my industry as well, but people don't answer their phone the way they used to. Right. If, if it's not in their phone or logged into a contact, they're kind of like, I'll, they'll leave a message yep. or they'll text me or something to follow up. Exactly. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of cold calls go to die is, mm -hmm. People try to do it and they're like, oh, this isn't working. It's really, it can be very self-defeating. You Absolutely. know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, like mentally, it can really drain on you. And even when you get through to somebody, generally they're kind of, uh, you know, they're agitated. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, miserable. Yeah, a lot of the And time, so the, yeah. the ability and the sales and the marketing skills needed to now deal with this person who's agitated, first calm them down, then succinctly explain what you're providing and get them to be actually interested in, it's kind of almost like a, a far-fetched idea now. Um, right. So, you know, but the direct mail is interesting. Talk about the direct mail a lot. How have you, how have you had success there? 
Yeah. So we've done a lot of different, I mean, at the end of the day, marketing is testing, right? So, sure. and God, I have done a lot of testing. I've done a lot of direct <laughs> mail campaigns that I thought were going to be fantastic and totally bombed, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, a lot of the stuff that we've done, we do postcards, we do letters, we do handwritten postcards. Um, yeah. So you name it, there's a lot of different types of mail pieces that we've done, but at the end of the day, the, the messaging is still always around the same focus, right? Hey, we purchase houses cash. We can, you know, buy houses that you're not going to have to make any repairs. You're, mm -hmm. it's going to be a smooth, simple transaction for you. Yeah. The, the direct mail, especially the handwritten ones, it kind of, it kind of speaks to me as a, a, a possible win situation. Reason being, it's like, we're almost so far from that, that we've mm -hmm. gone through the whole email revolution. We've gone through all of this. That's like, oh, well, if you get a handwritten letter now, it's kind of like, oh, that's different. It's different. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the um, thing at the end of the day, we just want to break, you know, a, a moment off of somebody's busy life, interrupt mm -hmm. their patterns. So they do potentially take action and call, go to the website, whatever our call to action is. Sure. So that's a huge piece. Yeah. So typically in, in this industry, what is your call to action? Is it basically let us give you an assessment of what we think and how we can help you? Or what's the call to action on, on your end? Largely the call to action is just call this phone number and we'll talk with you. Um, we've done plenty of mail pieces in the past where it's like, yeah, we're driving them to a web page to fill out a form or something from there. But sure. typically response rates go down when that is the call to action rather than a phone call. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that, so taking a step back from the physical mail pieces that we're sending and everything or the data set that we're marketing to, it does come down to the demographic that we're targeting, right? So we know our seller profile really well. And a lot of times, right? So yeah, technology is a huge thing, but most of our sellers and the hundreds of deals that we've done, I would say 90% or more of them are over 55 years old. Mm. You know, people that are older are not as tech savvy, right? So I think that also plays a factor into why direct mail has been so successful for us over the years. Yeah. Yeah, because they're, they're used to it. They've gotten that stuff their whole lives. Right. Hey, yeah. Okay, they're, they're used to understanding, okay, this is what I do. I follow up with the phone call and we go from there. Exactly yeah. right. And yeah, interject a handwritten aspect into that. And it's oh, like, they oh, care about well, me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep, I'm going to call. Um, so you mentioned that this is really a, a marketing company at its base. Um, you can kind of move the product in and out. But in, in your specific um, company here, what demographic do you go for? And even the real estate market itself, what kinds of properties are you looking for? Is it just, you know, uh, residential stuff that we do? Is it, do you have a, a multitude of different types? How does that work? Yeah. So um, we mostly target residential. We do some commercial as well. Um, but as to like, you know, different motivator indicators, like it's tough to give you a straight answer because just like the marketing methods, we've done so much, we do a little bit of everything, you sure. know? but I would say our main focus is typically just absentee owners. Okay. Absentee owners. Cause that, that that's a really wide net. Like people can yeah. itch down a lot past that. You can look at, you know, probate situations where somebody passed away. You can look at inheritance. You can look at, tax liens that are filed against properties and only target them. But a lot of times 
almost every one of them little subgroups also falls under the category of vacant. So we mm -hmm. cast a pretty large net in mm -hmm. what we do. Um, and then that's with our kind of bulk approach that we're doing. And then we may get more targeted with a little subgroup of people and go with a more direct marketing message to them. Yeah. And my follow-up question to that is how does um, this type of work how is it affected by the general real estate market, say for like a realtor? Is there any real impact or is it kind of its own separate thing? You mean like in terms of like, how does what we do in like the wholesale industry affect like your average like, real like, estate agent? Yeah. So say you have like, um, or maybe like put it this way. Say you have in the normal real estate people buying and selling homes, high interest rate environments or things like that. Does that trickle over at all to you? How do, what's sure. the direct impact of that on, on your business? It does. Yeah. So the interest rates, you know, we're in uncharted territories here, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, but by and large, like at the end of the day, there's always going to be sellers and there's always going to be buyers, right? Mm -hmm. the, the first changes that we really saw was, you know, when they started doing rate hikes last year and... I forget what month it was. It wasn't when they first started. Um, maybe it was like the second or third rate hike that happened. Um, we saw a lot of buyers for not a long time, but I would say probably a three, four week period. It was almost like everybody was just pausing. Nobody was buying stuff anymore. Mm. It's like at the same time. It's like this wait and see mentality. Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of hedge funds that were buying up properties all around the country, they stopped. So I think that kind of, painted a picture in people's heads like, oh, well, what do these guys know that I don't know? <laughs> I know that rates are going up. Money's getting more expensive to borrow. We don't know what's going to happen with values because if rates are going up, you know, our value is going to come down as a result of that. We don't know. So yeah, th there was definitely like what we saw in our business is like a three to four week period. And then after that, it was kind of like, okay, everybody's buying stuff again. And then the challenge became not so much on the buyer's side because you still have people that are trying to deploy massive amounts of capital, right? Because is your money safe anywhere else either? And mm. in, in this economic situation that we're in, yeah, historically, real estate has been one of the safer investment vehicles. So people are still trying to deploy capital and put it into real estate. So our issue has more so been with sellers, most of the houses that we're putting under contract are distressed in some way. You know, maybe the house is run down, maybe it's been vacant forever. Maybe it's, there's a tenant in there that's just been trashing the place and not paying rent for six months, hmm. but there's some form of distress and it could be financial distress, whatever. But when rates started doing what they were doing, like, I don't know, a lot of sellers, buyers want to buy for less, right? Of course, want to buy yeah. for less. There's more risk. Um, and sellers, they're disconnected from that. They're like, I don't give a shit what you're saying. Like, well, in, especially, in especially like right now, since last, last year. The worst part was a lot of the sellers that we were talking with at that point, they're like, well, I just had somebody three months ago offer <laughs> yeah. me $200,000. Yeah. And now here you are, Drew, you're offering me $150,000. And it's like, I don't know what to tell you. You should have taken that offer then. Call that guy back. 
I'm going to bet you he's not going to offer that anymore. Mm. It's like we are where we are. And it's just that everything happens so quickly that buyer or seller psychology takes time to adapt to real life market. It really, conditions. it really did happen quickly, real quickly. I, real I remember quickly. people who were into their homes for like two, 300,000 um, in places like Montana and they were selling them for 1.2 million. It's crazy. Like people just wanted to get out of like the major cities, move somewhere else. And that was like, okay, fine. Yep. You know what I mean? The subset of people who are just like, we just went out. Yep. I'm going to go somewhere else. And there was so much money. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so as far as your business, how is it correlated or not correlated with the broader economic markets? It seemed like there, there would be some correlation, but at the same time, it almost seems like there would be an inverse correlation by people are like, Hey, I need money. So I need someone to buy my home for me. You know what I mean? That's right. That's so right. is that is it the former or the latter, the latter you or know, it, a mix of the two kind of. Yeah. So, um, it, it's all really interesting. Um, you get a lot of, what am I trying to say? Like, can you, can you re-ask that question? So as far as the, uh, the, the broader economic market, Mm-hmm. and its impact on your business. It's like, do does my business do better when the market's doing well, or does it do better when the market's poor and people need cash so they're selling their homes? Sure, yeah. So to that, it's like, I can't really answer that because mm-hmm. I don't think we are on the other end of it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would tell you is I believe that this business or this industry, whether the market is up, down, left, right, sideways, it doesn't really matter. Um, because at the end of the day, there's always going to be people that need to sell that are distressed and have something right. going on. And there's always going to be people that need to buy and deploy capital, whether it's flipping, building a p- portfolio, whatever the case may be. It's just when the market may be up or maybe down your buyer profile or your seller profile may be different, right? Mm-hmm. That that's really the, sure. yeah, the yeah, big yeah. differentiating factor. But I think where we're at right now, it's like this industry will do well up or down. But when you have a steep change really quickly, not just in our industry, like that's disruptive to any industry, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we saw like in the last year. Well, yeah, it's crazy. I I mean, like I remember when um, I had clients and I was trying, they were maybe a little bit older, maybe like 55 and older. And I was trying to get them on a Zoom call and it was like the hardest thing in the world. But then as soon as a lot of that, the COVID stuff happened, it was like, oh, everyone knows how to use Zoom now. They're yep. put in a position where they had to, you know what I mean? And so I'm kind of, you know, it was it was helpful for me, just not as in broader scope, but just generally because, hey, people were making a decision or making a change in their habits in six months that might have taken them, you know, five, six, seven years otherwise, if ever, right. you know? Um, so sometimes you have these catalysts that come out of nowhere and just change the markets, like, you know, when all those um, checks went out, yeah, spending was like at an all-time high. Through the roof, yeah. And people just were buying anything and everything. Absolutely. And that's kind of why, back to the housing market, that's kind of why prices were probably so high for a bit. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there was so much money. There was too much money in the market, right? Yeah. There was too much money. Um, So you mentioned uh, real estate as an avenue and a historically good investment because of its tangible um, nature. What is your general feel about real estate, but also other tangible assets? Um, just, just kind of curious. Like, what is my overall, <clears throat> excuse me, outlook on real estate versus other investments? Is that what you mean? Um, or just like, uh, 
your general feelings on on tangible assets in general. So like like being able to hold something or have something in hand, um, especially in times where you know you have some of the markets doing all kinds of things. Yep. The the value there, and it almost it's almost like well, in the real estate world, it's it's a helpful thing because it's going to have some value. You know what sure. I mean? People need a place to live. It's going to have some value. Always. Uh, so maybe just talk about that and the tangibility of things. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think a lot of it for me, like that, that's largely the way that I am. Like I would much rather like we're doing right here. We're face to face with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you're right across from me. I would rather do this any day of the week than be on zoom with somebody. I would rather be face to face. I would rather drive two hours to a seller to meet with them and talk with them in their house than be on the phone with them. Sure. So I think there is a big aspect of that physical nature to mm. me. Um, and I guess I, I never really thought about it, but I guess that probably translates over into my investment preferences as well. And that's why mm. I love real estate, you know? Yeah. Never really thought about it like that. Um, and you also mentioned some of the, um, you know, these hedge funds coming in and, and buying some of this real estate. Um, I, I've heard inklings of that as well. You know, big corporations coming in buying real estate. What what is what is that about? Or what what have you seen? I guess if you've seen anything on your end as far as why these companies are doing it and the broader impacts of, of some of that. Sure. So I, I can't talk about it with too much experience from selling to hedge funds. We've sold you know a handful of deals to hedge funds, but there's not too many hedge fund buyers in the tri-state area that we operate in. But I'm in a bunch of different mastermind groups and all across the country, a lot of my other friends that are operating large scale wholesale businesses doing three, four, 500 transactions a year, mm -hmm. it was a huge shock for them because they're selling their deals 90% of the time to hedge funds. And when hedge funds stopped, <laughs> you know, that's a big problem. Like their business right. literally stopped dead in its tracks. They had one seller and that's exactly buying. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And me, I'm over here, I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm hearing all my buddies talking about how how their hedge funds are buying for 110, 120% of value and how easy they are to work with and everything. And I'm like, man, some of our buyers, like we have some buyers that are wonderful and have bought deals from us many, many times in a row, but we get some buyers too, that it's like, we sell them one thing and they are just so difficult and they just make the whole process really challenging for you. And it's yeah. like, Oh man, my buddies are over here talking about how great uh, these hedge funds <laughs> are and how much profit they're making on all these deals. But when all the hedge right. funds pulled out, it's like, okay, well, you know, here's the other side of the coin, right? Yeah. Um, but I think largely to the second part of your question, like why were they doing it and everything? And what was the strategy? I really, I think at the end of the day, it came down to how cheap money was, right? Mm -hmm. They had way more access to way more capital than you and me. And, you know, if they can go dump it into real estate, like why would you not, especially mm -hmm. knowing inflation is going to do what it's going to do. And there's going to be a lot of economic uncertainty, mm. tangible assets that, you know, will always have some form of demand. It's kind of like a no brainer if you have that much capital to deploy. Mm. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe let's pause here for a second. So uh, leverage and beverage is the name of the show. Uh, we have a beverage here today. We have uh, maker's mark, Drew's choice. Um, so what is it about maker's mark for you that, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of brings things, uh, into light? I guess. It, it's actually a funny story. So right at the beginning of COVID that the, the first time, um, me, <laughs> the, the, my wife, the kids, everybody got COVID. Right. And, uh, really it, it was 
for us, we didn't really have that many symptoms other than the fact that I lost my sense of taste and smell. Oh, wow. How was that? How was that? Man, brutal. So most people that lost it, lost it for a week, right? Two weeks. Hello, yeah. A freaking year, man. A year. A year. I had no sense. Like nothing. 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 No, No sense of smell. Could not taste anything for a year. So I was always a beer guy. And- Dude, it's weird when you're drinking a beer and you can there's you can feel the carbonation, but there's nothing there. Oh, there's man. nothing there. Weirdest thing. So I think somebody had gifted me a bottle of Maker's Mark. And I think I was just out of beer the one night that wasn't enjoyable anymore anyway. <laughs> and I was like, oh, let me pour a glass of this. And I did. And it's like, I still couldn't taste it. But I think just feeling that, that slight bit of burn, burn in the <laughs> back of my throat, I was like, wow, wow, that's like a new dynamic. Is, is it coming back? Is it coming a, back? It, it did. It did. It took literally a year to come back. Wow. And I still don't think maybe it's, you know, my, my perception, but I still don't think my sense of smell is as good as it once was. Hmm. So it's crazy, man. Do you remember the exact moment when it came back? I don't remember when the moment when it came back, but I remember the moment before I lost it because hmm. it was the weirdest thing, man. We were just eating dinner one night and it was like, you know, when you use like a nasal spray or something, and as soon as you do, it's like, okay, you get that nasal clarity, like mm. right after it was like that times a hundred for no reason. I was just sitting there eating dinner and it's like my nasal cavity just like started burning and everything got clear. Like just everything was so clear, more clear than it's ever been. I'm like, that's really weird. And no other symptoms that night woke up the next morning and my smell was gone. That is year. bizarre. Crazy, man. Crazy. Had it not be natural. Definitely, uh, that's a different topic. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are you on the bourbon train now? I am on the bourbon train. I enjoy it. I How do you like it? I like it a lot. Um, you know, I like uh, bourbon, some other whiskeys. I, you know, um, I, I tend to like the stuff that's a little bit more aggressive. Some people talk about smoother. I, I'm, I, yeah, I like that, but I also like when I, I know I'm drinking it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's something about that. Um, but like- it's also it's also just crazy to me. Again, being more in the beer world and less in this world, um, the fact that you know the color is just is just leached from the barrel. You know what I mean? There's something. I mean, I'm drinking like liquefied oak in a way. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. And it's, I don't know. It's very earthy. Very. Um, I don't know. Puts hair on your chest. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, it absolutely <laughs> does. It absolutely does. Anytime that uh, my wife even gets close to a glass of whiskey, she's like, "Oh, oh, how do you drink that?" Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's a gender thing at all, but it seems to be that a lot of women, especially dark alcohol, again, this is a generalization, so don't take it for what it's worth. <laughs> You're canceled. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? It seems I to do. be, and I, I don't know why that is, but... Um, yeah, I don't know either, but I think, thinking about it, like even going back to the first time I ever had a sip of beer, right? It's like, yeah. that probably didn't taste wonderful. It's like sure. we acquire that taste over time. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting. Uh yeah, I think the acquired thing is a it's a, it's a weird thing, but it's it it's weird how they they stick almost better than other things. Yeah. Like it's like, oh, I could have a, you know, an apple juice and it's like, oh, that tastes good, but then it's like I don't feel the need to like drink it every day. You right. know what I mean? Yep. I don't feel the way about alcohol either, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you know what I'm saying? But it's like it's like certain days where it's like a really hot day, you're doing like work outside and it's like, oh, I could really use a beer. You know yep. what I mean? Absolutely. I don't know what it is. There's something about it though. There is. There is. Um so let's walk let's talk about you about um a day in the life. So what's I want to get into some of your mindset, some of your um you know habits, but 
uh, walk me through a, a day in the life of Drew here at uh, Revamp365. Sure. Um, so a day in the life of me is probably like a lot of business owners, um, you know, like, and I, I guess to take a step back, like I know that a lot of people, especially in this industry, they, they wholesale or they run a fix and flip operation, but they never really have the desire to make it a business, right? They're mm. like that self-employed. I know guys that they have no employees, they wholesale, you know, 12 deals a year and they make a crap ton of money, man. Mm. And they're, they're happy doing that. And that's wonderful. Right. But like, for me, that wasn't my thing. I wanted to build a company. I wanted to have a brand. I wanted to be able to help other people achieve their financial goals too. And like a lot of the sales guys that I've brought in in the past to work here, like they've gone on and bought their own deals and flipped houses and bought rentals and everything. And I think that's so cool, you know? Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, for me as the business owner, like a day in the life, like what does that look like? It changes all the time, mm. right? Like really I go wherever there's a fire to put out, you know? <laughs> um, I'm always just working on the problems. You know, so it could be marketing if that happens to be an issue and we're not getting the results and responses that we should for a campaign. Okay. I put my marketing hat on and go jump in there. If there's an issue with the sales team and there's a reoccurring like issue that keeps coming up with sellers, you know, interest rates are happening, right? Okay. Now I need to jump in and I need to be the sales trainer for today. Right. Sure. Um, so really it, it could be anything, um, within the business. I, I feel like that sounds like a cop out too, but it could be anything. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. It's like, um, uh, it was a really good book by, um, Cal Newport. I have read it called deep work. He talks about how various industries will have ways that those people in those industries, especially writers need time alone to work on their stuff. They talks about the one exception to that rule, which is he calls it the Jack Dorsey rule, the head of, of Twitter when he still yeah. owned Twitter. And basically his job was to be everywhere at all times. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was his job. And so it's like, well, he wasn't really doing work, but his his best work was done by being that person who didn't really have to do any type of deep work. Absolutely. Um, so you know, I, I can see that for most business owners who have a hand in all the different pieces. It's, it's kind of like that. You know, there's there's especially businesses that aren't like, you know. 50, 100 people who who have like these established, established systems, there's going to be some some hairy days, you know, where things are Absolutely. up in the air. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I really did like your thoughts on business because it, it, it proves, and what I've always thought is that the purpose of business, uh, business in general kind of gets a bad rap sometimes for being like, you know, greedy people who want to do, but it's not, it's not all about the money. There's also other things that come with it. I'm not here just to make money. I also want to do things for the people I'm around, my family, X, Y, and Z, uh, bring people with me along that way. And um, if they aren't currently plugged into what their potential is, maybe I can assist that, assist them in that endeavor. Um, so I think there's a lot of credence there, and um, you know, not to nothing against people who are working to make a, you know, just to make money. That, that's that's fine too. Sure. I'm just saying I, I think there can also be uh, you know a secondary track there of business for not only helping people around you and your clients, but also helping your employees, et cetera. Absolutely. Absolutely. So th that just like made a thought pop into my head that I've had this conversation a couple of times with people. Right. Um, so about that, right. Like if you have somebody that they seem to only be fueled by money and their business and their job, whatever, um, is that, is that being selfish? What mm -hmm. are your thoughts? Do you think that's selfish? Um, 
I think it depends on their situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for example, like if uh, if they're really worried about their business and their job, but it's like they have a family to support, then you know I can't really call that selfish. You know what I mean? I but totally agree. Um, but you know if if it's the kind of thing like I heard a um thing about Bernie Madoff the other day, it's like just on the legitimate side of his business. He was making like 30, 40 million a year. It's crazy. But he was just saying, well, you know, that's good, but I also need to make all this other stuff. You know, yep. then that's that's kind of that's an extreme example. Yep. But I'm sure that happens in many other and much smaller ways at other businesses. I'm sure it does. I'm sure. And I bring that up because it's like at the end of the day, no matter how wonderful of a person somebody is, like you can look at like, you know mother Teresa, right? It's like, okay, anybody that does more selfless things than you can even wrap your mind around. Ultimately, every decision that every human makes is root rooted in selfishness. Hmm. Even that selfless person, it's just our perception about the acts that they do. But at the end of the day, that person that does all these charitable things and everything, ultimately at the core, don't you think they do that? largely because of the way that it makes them feel. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it is at that point, is that true uh, selfishness or is it not? Right. You know, because I mean? it's all perception. Sure. It's all perception, you know, but we do know. So I go really deep, like into different psychological aspects of how we process things as humans, right? Like it's building a sales team and everything. It's like, you kind of have to understand how the human mind works. Right. And just right. common tendencies that we have and everything. And yeah, I've gone pretty deep down some rabbit holes and some of the deeper spiritual stuff has led me to kind of yeah. simple, like it almost seems like an elementary level question, but it's actually really deep. If you think about yeah. it, it's like at the core, we all are driven by selfishness yeah. right? as humans. It, we it, are. There's a, um, a book called the psychology of money by Morgan Housel. Um, I was just exposed to it recently, but I was listening to him talk, and one of the things that he said was, he's like, there's charity, which is basically giving for a good purpose, giving with good purpose for the intention of, uh, you know, for your own feelings is basically philanthropy. And then he said, giving um, with the purpose of recognition mm. and uh, maybe a tax benefits. That's just a business deal. Right. <laughs> you know what exactly I mean? right. So, exactly right. Uh, but it, it's interesting because it makes, makes you think, it's like, well, what is my psychology about money? Why do I think certain ways? And a lot of this, it's kind of hard to explain, but it's worth exploring because a lot of this stuff comes from things that aren't really um, memories that we have cognitive um, that we're holding cognizantly in our heads. Absolutely. It's how we were formed when we were younger. What was our uh, situation being brought up, et cetera. And how does that impact us now in ways we don't even realize? Um, so, I, I mean, for me, I, I'm trying to even think about that. And I've been kind of, you know, while I was driving here, actually, I was kind of meditating on what, what, what is mine? And I'm, I still don't have an answer yet, but it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. It's a great thing to think about. And I think a lot of times there isn't really a definitive answer because there's so many different, things, like you said, especially in your upbringing and how every single little thing that happened impacted who you are today in probably more massive ways than we can really comprehend, right? Yeah. So it's it's really crazy to think about. One, one of the stories that he was speaking about was uh, the Vanderbilt family. And one mm. of the Vanderbilts uh, just had vast excess of, of resource, built this 135,000 square foot home. Um, he had 400 staff just to take care of it. That's insane. And, and he never went there. 
And it's like, well, what's the psychology there? You know what I mean? And he was uh, coming back at a guy who said basically like, the wealthy spend for their own pleasure. It's like, well, no, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just spend just to spend. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I don't know. I don't know what his upbringing was like, but it's worth uh, thinking about. And how can we apply some of those principles, whatever they are, to our own lives? And then how do we make decisions going forward as far as our own personal wealth, as far as decisions on on business opportunities? And I think all of this, it, it's, it's worth um, the thought experiment so you can make the best decisions possible going forward. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Um, so anything else that in your business that drives you up a wall? <laughs> like, I'm sure every business owner has their stories, but, you know, uh, part of this podcast has to talk about the leverage point. So at what point, what are crucial decisions that we made that made a vast impact down the road? So it could have been like a very small decision at the time, but wow, that one decision that decision to market a certain way or that decision to hire X person to do X job. Um, what are some of those uh, leverage points for, for you? Sure. So I think um, I could name a bunch of different ones. I would have to say that I have always been a strong believer in coaches and mentors and being around other people that are doing what you want to do and mm. who are already living like the financial life that you want to have. Right. So, um, like literally before we were talking about it, before we started the podcast, I've been going to real estate networking events for more than 10 years, probably 12 years now, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess it was before my first daughter was born. So yeah, it's like, I've been going to networking things for years. And even when I didn't really have much money at all, like before I bought my first real estate deal, I hired a mentor for five grand and I didn't have five grand. Like I just found it and I made it work, mm. you know? So I've always been a strong believer in coaching mentors, especially like I've never really hired a coach or a mentor in anything other than real estate sales or anything like that. But I think in what we do in this industry, it's like the risk of not making an intelligent decision is massive, mm. right? It's like, okay, so even then I knew, okay, I'm going to spend five grand to essentially have somebody to check my work, you know, to yeah. make sure that I'm not going to make a huge mistake. And I knew that a mistake could have cost me $50,000 or more, you know, if mm. something went wrong, I made a stupid buy or, you know, what we made terrible decisions on a renovation or whatever. I knew that the downside was much more massive than mm. the initial investment up front. Sure. And I like the accountability aspect too, especially then, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would have to say that one of the best decisions that I've made is always putting myself around people that are, have already accomplished what I want to accomplish mm. or being, or at, I shouldn't say, or it's, and also being around people that are on the same path as you that have not accomplished it yet, but they're on the same path. They have a similar trajectory and being around people that have similar views, beliefs and everything and similar goals. So mastermind groups, stuff like that. That's always been massive for me. Yeah. So to follow up on that, what percentage of business um, would you say is mental? Ooh. Hundred and ten percent. 
was talking to someone today and I, I asked them the same question. It was like, um, so much of it is just your outlook on things. And so much of your outlook is who you have around you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So to your point, having these people along for the ride, even if they're in the same industry, especially if they're in the same industry, is a valuable thing. So it's like this mindset of, well, I have these people around me who do the same work. Well, isn't that going to cannibalize my business? It's like, that's like a, a scarcity type mindset. For sure. And so it's like, how do we overcome that? It's like, hey, there, there's plenty of property out there for all of us, but maybe it, we can all accomplish more and grow the pie together as opposed to fighting over a single slice. You that's know what I mean? Absolutely right. Um, and I, I don't know, I see it all the time. And that's kind of re the reason why I even started this podcast was because I think there's so much abundance, especially um, both with, within certain industries, but also like cross industry and that just currently aren't being utilized. So how can we catalyze this stuff so that everyone can kind of move forward together in a bigger way? Like I was talking to somebody the other day and I was like, there's so many people who I know who prior to me actually thinking about it, I didn't know what they actually did. How can I introduce you to somebody or leverage you in any way if I don't really intrinsically understand what you do? Who is a good client for you? Yep. How can I make that introduction? Yep. Like one or two good clients, that could be the start of a, of a business for this person. And am I fulfilling my role in this person's life by understanding what they do? And I even asked some of my friends, I was like, do you understand what, and like by and large, Everyone had like a general inkling, but no one really knew. Yep. No one really knew or took the time to really dive deep into what it is that they do. Yep. Is, yeah. is that making sense? Is that no, like yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of that probably comes down to, I don't know what the percentage is, but if I were to pull a number out of thin air, I would have to say that probably 80% or more of people don't really care about what they do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. And if they don't care about what they do, why should they care what someone else does? That's right. You know what I mean? If I don't care about my job, like everybody hates their job, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Everybody, who likes going to work? That's the epitome of the scarcity mindset, right? Mm. Is like, you know, being content with not really even having aspirations, you know? Hmm. How about what do you think that? Let me take it back a second. What do you think the percentage of business is mental? <laughs> Uh, I would say on a daily basis, I don't know. I think it's hard to quantify because I think it's very hard. Uh, but I would say that I don't know what percentage it is, but I think it's enough to make or break it. You know what I mean? For sure. Like, I don't know what it is, but it's like, if, if you might have some of the skills, but if mentally you can't utilize those skills to, to make it happen, then it's not really worth much. For so sure. whatever that percentage is that makes that shift to mm -hmm. from I can't to I can, that's what the that difference is. I think I totally agree. I um, totally agree. So talk about the, the like, just just liking your work, and maybe eventually loving. Uh, we like a lot of people in general might not fall into that camp. I I hope as like a a country and you know we're, we're kind of moving in some direction where people are oh I can do this random thing and make a living doing it. And I, I like it. Like there's this one person I always point out, uh, it started during like the like COVID thing. And uh, she basically basically um, made a living just jumping rope on Instagram. That's awesome. Like, and she has, I think, I forget her exact, I think it's like Lauren Jumps or something like that. But she has over like a million and a half followers, tons of ad deals. And she probably makes, you know, 
upwards of 500,000 or more just jumping rope. That is fantastic. But I think there's also a, a risk. There's a trap in that, right? Because mm. it's not, at least for me, I'll speak for me. Life isn't just about the financial sure. journey, right? It's also about who am I going to become and who can I impact and everything. Like the financial piece is only actually a small piece of the pie, right? So mm. if if somebody can do something that in that extreme example, right? Like she may enjoy that and she's making a crap ton of money doing it and everything. But I would argue that she's still probably not going to find fulfillment. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a good way to, uh, to break it down. So it, it is crux of, well, I think, I think the problem is a lot of people seek, well, I am successful or I am fulfilled and they see money as the tangible to right, right. It, back it's that It's a up. scoreboard. It's a scoreboard. Right. And it's like, oh, I have this, therefore I must be this. Um, when I, I agree with you, I don't think it's like that. Um, and this whole mentality as well of things just being easy, easy money. It's it's almost like people get get jaded to the idea of what actually makes things you know valuable. That's right. Like, like that's like the struggle of stuff. You know what I mean? And, like and the struggle is that's the journey. Like well, that, that, that's that's it. That's everything. The I feel process like. is the destination. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like and it gets amplified so much because of social media, because of Instagram. It's like, well, I see Greg and he's crushing it. Like he must love what he does every single day. And it's like you ask anybody that has any sort of business and has any level of success at all, it's like a lot of days really suck. Yeah. But I know what the destination is and I'm satisfied with the process of getting there. It's not about getting to the finish line. It's about enjoying the process and you're not going to enjoy every single day. I think too many people get caught up because they see reality through this non-realistic lens that everybody's life is wonderful all the time. You're only seeing somebody's highlight reel. So it paints, yeah. even if it's only subconsciously in their mind, it's still there and it's making people miserable. Right. Right. Because they think he has this wonderful life. Everything is wonderful. For why, him why don't I have that? That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. So I should love what I do every day. So maybe I should jump rope. Yeah. Maybe that's what I should do because that makes me happy. But I think what makes you happy should not necessarily, maybe maybe there's exceptions to the rule, but what makes you happy on the day-to-day -day is probably not what you should do as a career. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like you should find something that's challenging, that is fitting for you, where maybe you can make it an impact in others' life, or it's just going to always keep you on a path of self-improvement for yourself. Let me ask you this. This is kind of in the same vein of what we're talking about, but what are your thoughts on the uh, the age-old trope of follow your passion? Hmm. I, I would say at the core of it, like that statement in and of itself, I agree with, but I think that phrase gets misinterpreted a lot to do what you love hmm. and do what you love. Like I just explained that, that can be a really risky thing, right? Because what you love, there might not be an actual need for, right? Right. Like I may love sitting around drinking whiskey, right? Yeah. Am I making the world a better place by sitting around drinking whiskey? 
am I making myself better by sitting around drinking whiskey? Right. Probably not. So I think too many people misinterpret that. So I think it's a dangerous phrase. Yeah, I, I do too. I think people get almost, uh, I don't know if tricked is the right word, but something along those lines of, hey, especially when they see everything, oh, I must prescribe to something that I absolutely love and I'm happy all the time. I'm always smiling when I'm doing it. And that that is the definition of success. But it's like, there's a few things that doesn't take into consideration. Like I, I tend to prescribe to um, uh, Mike Rowe. You know Mike Rowe? Yep. Yeah, he has, a, I think, a really good thing. It's like, well, you know, don't follow your passion, but but bring it with you. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I'm, what opportunities might arise in me just doing work as I normally would? Okay, maybe I can find a way to do this. Maybe I get into a sales role somewhere. Oh, I really like X, Y, and Z product. Oh, I can go to sales at that company. So yep. now I'm getting closer to whatever that thing is. But the idea that I should just stop everything and go pursue this thing because I don't know. It's also, it comes down to, are you good at that thing? You Absolutely. know what I mean? I might love jump roping, but am I good at it? Yep. I can get better, but maybe it's not a career path for me, at least right now. Um, exactly. I don't know. It's, it's almost like this, like, um, uh, I like the the thought to some degree behind it, but it's almost like you need some like temperedness, some tempered uh, thoughts with that as well. I totally agree. Totally um, agree. So, uh maybe segueing kind of into the real estate world. Do you think that real estate has some of that allure? I oh, mean, absolutely. I, I see a absolutely. lot. And it's like, people think, well, I'm going to have this, you know, real estate empire in under nine months and passive, passive income. You know what I oh mean? Oh my God. Um, I hate the phrase. Income, <laughs> man. It's terrible. I hate the phrase. There is nothing passive about owning rental properties. And look, this is coming from a guy that owns rental properties, you know, and I sell properties all day, every day to people that own rental properties. It's not passive. I'm not saying that it's not a good investment vehicle. You can build massive amounts of equity and pretty quickly sometimes too. And you can have cash flow. You can have your cake and eat it too, but it is not passive. Even if you have a property manager, because that's the biggest aspect of it that makes sure. it not passive is tenants need you. Um, properties need maintenance. Things need to get done. Um, even if you hire a property manager though, to outsource that massive portion of the active role is to being a landlord, you still have to manage your property manager, right? There's still work involved. It's not passive. The only way to be passive in the real estate investment world is to be a lender. Yeah. Why Why do, what's the allure of that you think to begin with of the, the phrase passive income? Why, like we just talked about how a lot of the value comes from being active and suffering through things. And everyone's like, well, I don't even want to do anything. I just want to, it's like, well, what what's the allure of that? Like like what do you, what do you even what are you stopping? What are you not working to do? You know what I mean? And so my answer to that again going like into the psychology of humans, right? Like I made the point that almost everything that we do does come from a selfish tendency, right? Mm. That's generally true, just based on the perspective of how you look at everything. But also another flaw of us humans is we're generally pretty lazy. <laughs> so the idea of I can do something one time and money continues to come in forever. That's a, that's a beautiful idea to people. Mm. I can do something once and money keeps coming in. That's incredible. I think it's more like they're in love with the idea of it. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Because I the idea itself is a trap. Right. And it's almost like, I, I wish that 
they almost wish. But then it, what I find is people who who say that, it's almost like, oh, I get it. If you have something else lined up that has true meaning, true value, might require additional work, I want to be able to fund that thing. That makes sense to me. The people who are just like, I just don't want to do anything. Yes. Yeah. I'm just like, what? Well, what? Why? You know what I mean? Why? Why are you here? What, yeah, what do you want to do? And then what? Yeah. And then what? Yeah. It reminds you of that. Uh, you ever see Fighting Nemo? Yeah, of course. <laughs> the the end of the movie when they're all just in those bags in the ocean. Yep. They're like, yeah. Now what? Yep. You know what I mean? It's, Absolutely. It's, it's kind of like that. And that's you know that's one thing that early on one of my first mentors like asked me, and it was like an activity that he kind of made me do is like. Uh, there's a name for it. I, I've done it a couple times now. I forget the name of it, but it's essentially like, okay, what are your goals? Where do you want to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years in life? But what do you want to do? And let's just say that it's a financial thing. Cool. I, I want to have a portfolio worth $50 million and I want to have a company with 50 employees. Wonderful. Cool. I'm going to snap my fingers and tomorrow you have that. Now what? Well, I, I don't know. I guess I guess I would travel the world. I would I would take my wife anywhere and do anything I wanted and put my kids in the best private schools in the world. I would fly private. I'd buy a jet, whatever. Okay, then what? Because that gets boring after a year, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, how long can you do that? Maybe you can do it for five years. Then what? What do you do after that? Yeah. And when you actually really kind of think deeply on it and it's like, well, what would I, like if, if money was no longer a thing, right? If, if I could have whatever I wanted, go where, wherever I wanted, bring whoever I wanted with me, what next? <laughs> is and it, that's an interesting is it, thing. Is it still fun? Yeah. That's right. I mean, look, it's the same as like putting cheat codes into a video game. Like as soon as you start playing it, like it, it kind of, maybe there's exceptions to the rules. Some video games are fun with cheat codes, but uh, it <laughs> largely it takes the fun out of it, right? It's mm -hmm. like, there's no challenge anymore. And if there's no challenge, What's the point? Yeah. So I, I dabble in the sports card space. I love, you know, old vintage stuff, some 90s stuff. And uh, it's interesting to me because uh, Fanatics, huge corporation worth like 18, 20 billion dollars, they come in and bought the licenses for the cards. Hmm. And Michael Rubin, who's the CEO, basically like, we're going to make this. Uh, it's, it's very burdensome right now for the collector. And uh, we're going to make it a lot easier. You know what I mean? And it's like, I was like, hold up a second. You understand that most of the joy of this entire thing comes from finding these pieces. Me going to XYZ store in some random small town, digging through a box and finding something, that's the rewarding part of this. The thrill of the hunt? Right. Okay. It's, it's, not, it's not just the, oh, I have access to anything at 24-7. Because access to anything 24-7, at least in my head, it makes it much less valuable. If I, if I can get it anytime, then where's the value there? I'll just hold off and wait. You know it's what I mean? Interesting thought. Yeah. And I'm sure that that's not just you. That That's for a lot of people. That's sure. part of the thrill. So back, just back to the conversation about, well, what, what is this whole idea of suffering through something and what makes it actually meaningful at the end of the day? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, one phrase that I'll, I'll quote Gary Vaynerchuk here, but he talks about like, he believes that he intentionally self-sabotages himself sometimes just to keep playing the game. It's almost like during the game, you, you kind of get this edge. You're like, Oh, I like even for some of the stuff that I've done, like side projects, I've learned so much just being thrown into the fire and being like, holy crap, like, how do I figure this out? Yeah, it's stressful. Yeah, a lot of it's like, you know, I, I can't, you know, there's, there's, there's pain or suffering associated with it, but you ultimately come out the other side realizing that was good for me. 
Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So what, what do you think about that? Do, do, do you think you did that to some degree? Absolutely. Yeah. All the time. All the time. I know oh, so. it about myself in a lot of ways. Um, so one of the ways that comes to mind first is like, I know that I not just operate well, I thrive under pressure. Mm. So even when there is a period where everything is going smooth in life and in business, which usually doesn't happen for long clips of time, right? It's like, maybe there's a solid like two months where just kind of everything is working the way that it's supposed to. And it's like sure. a well-oiled machine still, even when everything is working wonderfully, cash flow is wonderful. Projects are flowing along smooth and everything. Since I know that I thrive like under pressure, I will artificially create pressure a lot of times. Like let's buy those two extra properties, you know? Absolutely. I, mean? <laughs> I, I will create pressure out of thin air, even if it's just to alter the state of my own mind to keep me performing where I believe I'm optimal. Right. You know? Yeah. Like we've had situations where we have like clients and it's like, well, we'll bring on a few clients and it's like, well, we it, it shows or highlights certain areas and it's like, I need to figure out a process to take care of this when it happens. Yep. And so it's almost like if I did, if that didn't happen, I don't know if that process would have been created that I'll now use going forward for a long time. Um, sure. So I don't know. I, I, I think there's a lot of credence to it, but um, do, do you think like, what ways do you think that tangibly applies to your business or how have you seen yourself do it besides like, Hey, those two extra properties, what, what does that cause me to do in, in the business? So a simple way that I can explain that is like, um, the financial pressure too. Right. So like I, even years ago, like what I would do, I, I always, I always have lived like I'm broke. It doesn't matter how much money happens to be in the business account. I've never kept a lot of money in our personal accounts. I prefer to feel like you're behind. I have yeah. nothing and I have to make crap happen. Mm. Like there's only been a couple times where I'm like, and Tom knows it. Yeah. I did exactly that last year. I, I bought a lot of stuff. I was sitting on more cash than I ever had. And I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> it's not good. I need to deploy this into some assets because I think just psychologically knowing myself, like I I'm a driven person. Right. And like I said, it's not just about money for me, but when you have enough money sitting there that it's like, well, all the crap that I've been dealing with the last week at the company and everything that's been going, you know, really difficult, man, I really don't, I really don't need to do it. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't need to. So yeah, that right away. I mean, I bought houses and <laughs> I just put that money into stuff like immediately, but I've always kind of been like that on a financial, like, perspective, right? Mm. Like I've always tried to live like I am broke. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think a few other people could maybe use that <laughs> to their advantage. Yeah. Um, yeah. talk to me about some of the, the process of team building or mm. bringing in like strategic partners or having the correct strategic partners in place so that things do go smoothly. Cause this definitely applies to the real estate world, but also applies to other, but of other industries. So for people who list, who are listening, you know, this can be applied in, in your businesses as well. But uh, 
talk about it from your perspective. Sure. Um, so yeah, like I said, I mean, team and recruiting and everything has always been a really important thing to me because it's also about bringing people along for the journey. Right. Um, it's challenging though, man. Mm. It's challenging. People are hard, mm. right? People are hard. Um, I have, especially like, so dating back to when I first got into the world of business, flipping houses and everything, like I started a construction company to be able to do our projects and everything. So we kind of had most of our construction done in-house. We didn't sub out a whole lot of things. Um, so especially in the world of construction, it's like your turnover is usually high. Mm. You know, you have to deal with a lot of crap. You got to deal with, um, people that are flaky as crap. Sometimes it, it's a really difficult thing to manage, right? Mm -hmm. Really hard. Um, over the years, I mean, obviously I put some different practices and procedures in place to kind of help screen people a little bit better and everything. And hopefully recruit better talent along the way. And I did, but at the end of the day, still, I have gone through a lot of different employees, some of them that were wonderful for a long time period. And then they were just no longer aligned with the vision of the company or something changed in their life. And that's fine as well. But I think massively different from the construction side to the real estate investing and sales side, you know, um, going from like, contractors and, you know, subs down to like, uh, just your general laborers that it's hard to even get people to show up, you know? Sure. So yeah, going into recruiting for sales positions and other office positions, it was almost like a breath of fresh air. It's like, wow, this is nice. <laughs> like people actually show up to interviews when they say <laughs> that they're gone to and everything. They, they brought a resume with them. Yeah. Which by the way, I don't read. I've never read a resume in my life and I probably never will. Yeah. My assistant does read them, but I don't read them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, what, what else can I go into about like say or recruiting in general and team, you know? Yeah. What do you think? Um, where should we go with that? So uh, strategic partner wise, who else do you have to have lined up just to make things happen? You were talking about, you know, how your first deal, you didn't have these people lined up, but you just kind of had this packet sent off to these banks and then, uh, and then what? Exactly. So I literally sent out this packet to 10 different banks and I sent it out like two or three times in like a 24 hour period. So like I was literally sending it to the same VP <laughs> at a bank, like three times in a day. Um, and one of them got back to me, had great, great, great terms and their process was pretty simple to get everything done and they had a renovation loan package. So they were, I think maybe I'll get the numbers wrong, but I think they funded 75% of the purchase mm -hmm. and a hundred percent of the rehab wow. and their rates were ridiculously low. You know, everything that I had heard is people were borrowing from hard money lenders, private lenders, and they were paying even at the time eight years ago, like people were paying 12% or something mm -hmm. on these rehab loans and the bank that I lined up, I was paying like 5%. Like it was a local, local bank loans. or? Uh... Yeah, that one, the, the first bank that I ever used was First Colonial Community Bank in Jersey. Mm. Um, yeah. I, so I I've actually, I think community banks are largely underrated. Absolutely. Like I actually just um, got signed up with one of my local um, banks and um, some of the stuff for businesses, especially like you get nickel and dimed at somebody's large for, you know, monthly payments and all this stuff. But I'm like, 
everything there is I get a, a free checks, a free check, they put this beautiful checkbook in the mail. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Um, but you know what I mean? I really do think that the local community banks, like, I think everything should be more localized when possible. I think everyone tries to have this mentality of we need to have this one system overall that will control everything. It's like, well, I don't know. I think there's real value in building there's pros root, and cons root right? in community. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But there is, there's a lot of value, especially for small businesses and everything with the local community banks, because they, they know that they can't succeed unless the small local businesses succeed also. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It only makes sense that, you know, you get um, better deals with them. They're more enticed to bring you in um, because they know you can go elsewhere if you don't. Exactly. Um, So maybe let's talk for a quick second about your broader vision. So you kind of given us a, a, a taste of what you guys do now in, in the current day, what's your vision for, for going forward? So for years, like my vision was that I wanted to be able to flip hundreds of homes a year. So dating back to when I was trying to scale up the fix and flip company and everything, the only reason that I started wholesaling, which wasn't really wholesaling to me at the time, it was just a lead generation strategy for my fix and flip company. Mm. Um, the only reason that I was doing that was so I could eventually get to the point where we could flip hundreds of homes a year. And as time progressed, the wholesale business became a wholesale business, which really how that happened was you know, our issue at first was obviously we didn't have enough deals. Sure. After I finally figured out the marketing and sales piece, well, then we had more deals than we could buy. So it's like, okay, well, I have a buddy who's also a flipper. We're also a landlord and I can sell this deal to him and make a few bucks, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and it actually really balanced out the the cash flow of the fix and flip business. Like in a fix and flip business, like there were times where it's like, cool, on paper, I'm going to net like almost $2 million but there's nothing in the operating account because this is all not coming in for another six months. Right. Right. So it's like, you're always paper rich, but you never have any money. Right. (laughs) It's crazy because for (laughs) the entire, entire duration of owning that property, it's just money out. There is no transactional. There's no small amounts of revenue you're bringing in. It's just money out until you sell. So you do that at scale and it's like, it can get crazy really fast. So balancing that with the wholesale and it's like, okay, well now our cash conversion cycle for that business only takes 30 days from getting something in the door to being able to monetize on it, right? So it brought in that short-term revenue as well that really helped balance the business out. Mm. Um, But back to your question, like what is the overall vision? That's what it was. I wanted to be able to flip hundreds of homes a year with myself and my company. And as the wholesale business kind of developed into its own living, breathing thing, it's like that vision just kind of shifted a little bit. It's like, yeah, I still want to be involved in real estate. I love so many aspects of it. And I've met so many wonderful people along the way, but it's like, I still want to have all of them. Like my vision is I don't think there should be any shitty homes around. Like there should not be any (laughs) shitty dilapidated rundown homes where the grass is three feet tall and there's been a hole in the roof for 10 years. That should not exist, right? Right. There's such a shortage of homes, especially right now. You know, there's no supply, there's no inventory and there's a lot of people that don't have a place to go, 
right? So this can contribute to that a small amount. Like if I could snap my fingers, wave a magic wand and say, hey, tomorrow there's no more vacant rundown homes, that's what I would do. So, but I think ultimately, rather than viewing it through the lens of I'm going to make a massive impact by renovating all them homes myself. Mm -hmm. Now I've realized I have so much more ability and there's just so much more leverage working in my favor to be able to do one small piece of that work, the acquisition side of that Mm. and sell them properties to other guys that are probably much better at what they do as an operator in a construction company, fix and flip company as a landlord, right? And I'm still doing those things, but I'm not naive enough to think that I am the best, right? So there's plenty of people out there that are more than capable than I am, right? Right. And it's almost like the wholesale side is almost allowing you to do that to some degree at scale. You're almost outsourcing some of the flip pieces to other people. Exactly right. Yeah, that's cool. Exactly right. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um. Cool. So maybe now we'll jump into our uh, quick question round. Ooh, we'll, baby. We'll go through a few uh, quick ones. Just want to get your uh, initial thoughts on some of these. Uh, where do we have it here? Hold on. Um, what is the the coolest thing that you've seen lately? Coolest thing that I've seen lately? Anything. Could be in the real estate world, wholesaling world, whatever. Man, now I'm going to think on it for a minute. Yeah. Take your time. I don't want to have too long of a pause here, but <laughs> what is the coolest thing that I've seen? That, that That's really an interesting question. Hmm. Coolest thing that I've seen. Oof. Oof. That's tough. That's tough. I'm going to have to say, uh, <laughs> It's going to be funny, but it, but it's also cool. So I have my first son now. Mm. I had my first daughter when I was young, I was 21. She's going to be 12 now. And my middle daughter, she's five. And we were not planning on having a third child at all. And here we are. I have a son now. <laughs> he's, nice. uh, he's one. And just the other day, he just uh, is walking around in his diaper and like, he's crazy, like total, total boy, like chaos all the time and has no fear. But the other day he's just walking around in his diaper and just rips it off and uh, just takes a pee right on the middle of the floor. And he was just <laughs> so proud of it, man. And I was just, I remember thinking like, you asked me that question, I had to think, but in that moment I was like, that's, that's terrible and annoying. And I got to clean that up, but that's cool, man. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> that's probably not the answer you were expecting, but seeing my son rip off his diaper and pee in the middle of the floor and be happy about it. I was there's like, gotta oh, be something. Cool. It's gotta be, he kind of upped the level of respect to give him. <laughs> Absolutely. <now. laughs> right. Right. He's a man now. <laughs> he was asserting his dominance in that moment. You know, marketing his like, territory I'm pee on this floor and you're going to clean it up. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Um, what tools, uh, do you use on a daily basis that you couldn't live without? Ooh, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot. If you want to just, you know, mm. throw some out, list them off, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, look, obviously the phone, <laughs> the, the phone yeah. as, as a tool in and of itself could not live without, right? It's like sure. a lot of what we, like if we had to physically go to every person's house to have a conversation, like we wouldn't be a business, right? And so, <laughs> yeah. Now the reality is we're not actually 
using phones. We're using software systems through computers and everything. Um, but yeah, as, as a whole, like in the business phones, mm-hmm. um, and going deeper, it's like, yeah, our CRM systems and everything, because that's essentially the brain, the heart of the company without sure. it. Yeah. You really can't exist, but I use a lot of different software tools, man. Like it's, it's crazy, you know? Yeah. It is kind of wild. Like, um, you're talking before we jumped on about some of those digital business card things and just how yeah. very small, like five minutes of your time could just save you so much. And also not only save you time, but also increase the likelihood that that connection will happen. And that's massive. Like, yeah. like what is that worth? What like, is that one? Like if I can increase that by 50% because someone's more, the contact's already in their phone versus having to put it in themselves. That's huge. It's massive. Like 50%. That's, that's massive. Yep. Um, Okay, so for you and your company, what are the most transformational changes you're looking to make over the next 90 days? Most transformational changes over the next 90 days. Um, With the market shift and everything that's happening, we're kind of just changing our marketing strategy a little bit for the first time in a long time. And really, I think a lot of that just comes down to the uncertainty of not where we're at today. It's like myself and probably a lot of people are more fearful of like, what's going to happen in the next 12 months in the next 18 months or whatever. Right. It's like, I don't think we've seen the, the catastrophe that may come from everything over the last couple of years. You know what I mean? So, um, really I'm just operating, from a more conservative approach. Mm. And that really was never even like my, my style. You know what I mean? Sure. Like I've always kind of been like running and gunning. We're going to throw everything at the wall and it's, it's going to damn stick, you know? Um, so yeah, we're just being more selective with what we're spending our marketing dollars on. And we are really just being more intentional with everything that we're doing. We're trying to <clears throat> do everything in our power to, create meaningful relationships with both sellers and buyers and be able to create win-win situations for everybody and do it more cost-effectively. So everybody wins, right? At the end of the day, if we're able to operate more efficiently and more um, cost-conscious, like we're going to be able to sell deals to people regardless of what happens, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, what advice would you give to uh, a young entrepreneur or someone starting a business? Hmm. I think giving generalized advice is also kind of scary. It's hard. You know, it's really hard. I would need to know more about what their, what their aspirations are. That's a good response. Maybe let's cater it to you personally. Ooh, to me personally. Like if you were giving yourself advice, your advice when you were starting. Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up. That's good. I like that. Buckle up. Yeah. But no, I think like grit is a really, really important thing. Like you cannot, in terms of longevity, like you cannot be successful, not even just in business, but like in life, if you don't have grit, like hmm. you're going to get punched in the mouth, especially in business, but in life in general, like you're going to get punched in the mouth probably a lot. Hmm. It's going to hurt sometimes. Yeah. You know, you have to be able to withstand that. And I think culturally where we're at and what's being promoted, especially to our kids these days is like, 
to be soft and that you should never have to feel offended and nothing should ever be hard. And I think that's setting people up for disaster because you need to be gritty. You need to be able to yeah. withstand some crap, man. It's going to be hard anyway. So you might, might, anyway. might as well get used to it. Yeah. Like putting somebody in a bubble and sheltering them from something mm. like that's a scary thing because right. once they come out and experience the real world, it's going to be tough, man. Yep. I think grit. Yeah, that's good. And then uh, besides uh, Maker's Mark, what is your favorite beverage? Mm. Besides Maker's Mark, what is my favorite beverage? I don't know that I would say it's my favorite, but I, I drink a lot of water. That's good. Water. And my God, my kids make fun of me all the time because I say water instead of water. Yeah. But I, I can't, you know, I, I probably consume like 15 bottles of water a day. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. The <laughs> highest we've had so far on the show. So there you really? go. Really? Oh, yeah. Go me. I haven't asked the question across the board, but maybe I will going forward. Um, but Drew, thanks so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. It's been great. Yeah, it's Thank been great. Thank you so much. Um, so take the next minute or so. Anything you want to plug? Any final thoughts or where people can find you? Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Drew underscore Farnese, I think, or just search my name. That works. Uh, I'm on Instagram as well. I don't, I'm not super active there. If you are interested in buying real estate investment deals for flips, rentals, development type things, you can go to our website that is revamp365.io, not .com, not .net, revamp365.io. There is our active inventory that we have on there at all times. If you go on, you create a free account and everything, you'll get subscribed automatically to our email list. So you're never going to miss a deal that pops up. And actually, great point of plugging. With that website, it's been in development now for almost three years. Uh, right now, it serves as our inventory for wholesale deals. Mm. Been developing it for more than two years now to also link in MLS deals on there, which again, kind of just like the wholesale thing, uh, I thought would be really easy. Not very easy, not really easy <laughs> to pull it all together, but it's going to be launched in probably the next three months. So users and investors are able to go on there and they have one marketplace that they can find wholesale deals, not just from my company, but from all the wholesalers, it'll first be launched in the tri-state area. Um, but all wholesalers deals will be listed on this marketplace as well as properties that are listed for sale on the MLS. And the real values to the consumer for that is there's like advanced filtering criteria and everything mm. that you just wouldn't have on realtor.com, Zillow, anything yep. like that. So the real draw to it is you're not going to miss a deal that fits your buying Profile. criteria. Yeah. So Very it's cool. huge. So yeah, just go on there, create a free account and, uh, Keep an eye out because it's going to be really awesome in the next couple of months. Cool. Awesome, Drew. Thanks very much again. Really Thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. If you're not yet a subscriber, please go and hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms, and you'll get notifications whenever new episodes are posted. If you want to write to us or have a business that may be a good fit for the show, feel free to reach out. Our email is leverageandbeverage at gmail.com, and our Instagram is at leverageandbeverage. I'm Greg Sobosinski, and as always, keep pushing forward one sip at a time. 